It's easy to get lost. This is The Revenue Maze, and I'm Valerie Cobb. Join me as we navigate the halls, dead ends, and U-turns on your path towards upward growth trajectory. The Revenue Maze is sponsored by Revenue North Star, guidance and execution through fractional revenue leadership, uncovering hidden revenues, and empowering small business growth through process-driven sales customized to your company environment. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited for this next episode of The Revenue Maze. I have an amazing guest. Just so many wonderful things about this guy. Um, First of all, he's originally from Dallas, Texas, yet his parents are actually from South India. So there's some interesting things there as well. He studied computer science and finance at the University of Texas. And yes, he was with Goldman Sachs. Then post Goldman Sachs, he was part of a $10 billion hedge fund. Count it. Yes, that's amazing. We'll lace a little bit of Mark Cuban in there. I just want to welcome today CEO of Lightyear, Dennis Thungachen. Welcome, Dennis. Great pronunciation and excited <laughs> to be on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. I um, I just can't. The rest of us probably can't wait to hear everything about you because this is just amazing. And thanks for being on the on the show, first of all. But we always answer one question, right? What is one thing that you can tell the listeners or viewers that will help them get out of the revenue maze? I love the question. Um, so my recommendation may sound simple, but I think it is probably the only way to get out of the revenue maze is to think about the product that you have and how the buyer of your product would intend to discover and buy your product. Meaning like in the context of software as a service, which is where I play, you know, you can think about inbound, outbound, um, an enterprise centric go-to-market motion targeted at a specific buyer, a product-led growth motion and you should think about given the nature of your product the price of the product and who your buyer is how they should discover your product and then all of the means by which you can go after that for example like a company like um calendly for example is very much a product-led growth motion that has like a viral loop and referral discovery motion as well as a lot of inbound um motion. And it's not something that necessarily lends itself really obviously to like an enterprise centric, you know, high cost sales driven go to market motion. Mm -hmm. And that sort of dictates where it should sell. And you often see a lot of companies that fail with go to market or are stuck in the revenue maze often are not able to match how they should be selling their product based on how the buyer wants it and how they actually are um, selling and marketing their product. You know, I love that because I think a lot of, you think almost, you almost described product-led as identity. Sometimes we swim in lanes we should not be swimming in, right? And as we start to go into a go-to-market strategy, um, sometimes our desire to say we're one thing is not the market's desire that that's what that would be, right? So maybe I confused the heck out of you just now, but Really, I, I mean, 
product would be no different because you're actually solving some kind of behavior or something in the space, right? And and what people are, what what they're willing to digest on their journey for buying that product, right? And so give us a little bit more about how you've kind of done that because I know right now you started Lightyear and you've been in all of these other um, kind of industries and seen a lot, I mean, a lot. How have you kind of, how have you kind of worked through that? Um, at the time that I started Lightyear, where now I think I have like a pretty good understanding of the correct answers to these questions for Lightyear. Um, I was previously, of course, an investor in software and being an investor in software misleads you into thinking that you know how to run a <laughs> software company just because you've been an investor in software companies. Um, which was almost forced me to unlearn lots of things. But um, when I started Lightyear, the initial hypothesis was that we would build a product. Um, and of course, like essentially what our product does is we automate how businesses buy and manage their telecommunication services. And initially we had a product that was focused on smaller dollar sales into smaller businesses um, mm -hmm. with what would be more of a product-led rather than a sales-led motion. So more after volume of both units and customers rather than individual very large customers. And that led us to go after certain types of go-to-market motions, meaning not be sales-led. We went after a lot of inbound um, and we did that via like really sharp content marketing and search engine optimization to rank highly on Google, um, going after things like Google paid media and AdWords and Reddit advertising, posting on Reddit, things like that, that lent themselves to more transactional acquisition of smaller businesses. Um, over time, we've discovered that the, the, I guess, quintessential value of our product is at the enterprise with bigger dollar spenders mm -hmm. who buy in different ways. Like these are buyers that tend not to be Googling for products and intend to be approached and sold to, and also are very heavily researched before they end up buying a product and go through lots of cycles and how they decide to buy products. So that's caused us to ship a lot of things, meaning like we spend a lot of time writing really, really good content. We spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. We now have a an account executive team and an SDR team tasked with booking meetings and conveying value to customers. And we do a lot of work at conferences, meeting buyers, and at um, with just like standard good old outbound marketing. Uh, so that it's been a total change in motion upon mm -hmm. that discovery. But but again, like the core thing is, which sounds really simple, but it's much easier said than done, is making sure that the way we're marketing to our buyer is the way that that buyer for this product should be marketed to. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is a journey. You almost have to A-B test your first theory of it, right? So there were, I think oh. it was back when I was in healthcare, we were going against the grain, um, you know, Right now we have a lot of digital that's going on and they'll have this pat answer. First, you need this, then you need this, then you need this, then you need this, and you need this great website and you need all this ranking and all this kind of stuff. And then people didn't really look. It's like, okay, this is the trend. This is what statistically works, but that doesn't mean that that works in your environment. So sometimes when people step back, so what we did 
like sort of in healthcare it was it, it was a bit the same thing it was kind of a it was kind of a tech stack but not at the same time and we basically ended up going to like what I, I don't know if you know them but they're Marcus Evans events where they're I call them speed dating right because you have all these doctors that come in for a conference it's a very expensive conference right but it's very niche very little and then they guarantee you know a certain amount of meetings like 20 minute meetings with the and and the whole time you're getting to know everybody because it's a very small intimate group period right so the whole goal and so it was very at the time it was very out of the box because our buyers weren't going online and this was I and granted, this was in 2016, so things have changed. But you think about who is making those decisions and how are they buying? And if you're just doing the pat digital go-to-market strategy, you know, have a website, focus on inbound, and then you find that your customer isn't at the end of that, <laughs> then what do you do? Think outside the box. So it sounds like you guys really thought outside the box and took a step back and kind of went, okay. Where do our buyers buy? <laughs> you know, how do they buy? And then created that strategy. And the tougher thing along those lines, which I'm sure you've experienced, is making sure that your revenue leadership, whether that just be a founder or a real like head of sales or head of marketing, whoever that may be, actually can take a step back and analyze with an open mind everything. Um, I've seen it in various early stage companies where you have a buyer that has experience with a few different channels that automatically biases toward those channels. For example, mm -hmm. a sales leader from a previous company is like, oh, we used to crush it at every single conference. So we're going to go to AWS reInvent and the yeah. Gartner conference and this, and we're going to spend 200 grand at each of these things. And that's where we're going to get our customers, which if you're doing a very similar product or service than what you used to do, perhaps that works super well. Sure. Um, but if it's determined that that's not a good strategy or that strategy is being picked based on finger in the air, sort of like historical experience, but rather than sort of uh, an actual thesis that this is the way they should buy, um, there can be a mismatch. And then you spend money on these things and then it doesn't work. And then it's like, well, we need to do something else. And that person that you have in the position may not be willing or able to do something else. So that's something to also think about. And that's why I guess a founder being very focused at an early stage tech company in particular on like being very open-minded on discovering the channels that work well can help you pick the right revenue leader once you have inklings of what may work well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's so valid. Right now in the workspace, we hear about the, the quiet resignation. We hear about um, before, you know, just resignation period. And I know that you're kind of going, well, what the heck does that have to do with it? Well, <clears throat> as people are coming in and he smiles, isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah, like, what? what is this? But as people are switching jobs and as people are trying to find what I call their passion, they will bring with them at some instances, they're going to bring a different background or a different outlook into your company. So there are going to be times like, I, okay, I will use healthcare, not because I was in healthcare very long because I wasn't, I've been in heavy equipment and I've been in tax and accounting software and I've been in a bazillion industries. Right. But when I think of healthcare, um, they tend to run the same thing 
you get a job, you, you get a job posting and it says they have to have five years in healthcare. And I think it gets us a bit myopic sometime on our product, right? Meaning that we just see the same, we go down that same path. So it was kind of more of a, what have I learned? So in the job space right now, especially with people saying, well, they're just leaving or they're just not really engaged anymore, which is what the quiet resignation is about. But I think it was already there, whether we knew it or called it something like that on Wall Street Journal, right? But if we, if we look at those, that diverse group of people and we say, okay, how do we fill some of these roles? And are we willing to take a look outside more at trade or something else so that we're not being so myopic in even, even in um, what you were talking about with, you know, hiring the right founders that would help you with the right revenue leader or whatever. Um, it's kind of broadening and saying, don't get so focused and maybe some of this next workforce or whatever are those that are not so, they don't need to be right in your industry in order to bring that kind of expansion or capacity to look at it in a different way. So maybe that was just kind of like, wow, Valerie just went on this weird circle tirade. But the reality is, I just love that you're taking it from a perspective of saying, all right, it's not just me that needs to think the buyers need to think. So how do we get the right leaders in there or whatever that would make it so that you can get the right go to market strategy? Maybe that's what I'm saying, but. Yeah, I, I can see what you're getting at. And I think the whole point on being myopic it, with regard to your industry background or just like personal experience is definitely something that can impact how a company runs. So like, with regard to Lightyear and how we see it, we obviously build software for enterprises to buy and manage their telecom. So that lends itself to you probably wanting to recruit people who have a background in telecommunications, which is a very specific industry that does things a very specific way that is yes. somewhat painful to learn from the ground up. However, um, our revenue leadership is not from telecom because the people within telecom are actually terrible revenue leaders for our organization because for <laughs> one, customers hate buying telecom services like B2B or B2C. So why would we want to replicate a means of distribution that customers absolutely hate dealing with? And two, like we're doing it digitally via software. Nothing that the telecom companies do is digital. We in fact want to be sort of antithetical to the way that they want to do things. So really what we've done is we have individual contributors who have a good amount of experience in telecom because we want we do want to leverage the experience and we value it, but our revenue leaders are people who are coming in aiming to change the way that things are done in telecom ah. and leverage or software experience. So we've actively looked for people that are not from telecom. Ah, I love that. that. Makes sense. It does. And you probably were a little more concise than my big long story with it, but that that's kind of what that's kind of what we're saying. If we say that you, you're, if, you're, if your go-to-market strategy is going to be one way, have we looked at the broader picture of how your buyers buy, what's wrong with the industry, how, and, and before you start even dealing with how are we going to go to market, right? And for me, I guess 
it's kind of, I'm a big challenger methodology kind of person, challenger sale. I don't know if you know Matt Dixon and those guys, but at the end of the day, um, it was more of just kind of aha moment is it was uncovering what people are not thinking about because that's really where your play is at, like the aha moments. So in your go-to-market strategy, when you're bringing on revenue leadership that might be outside of industry, it brings in that sort of aha, you're not thinking maybe in this, you know, it's kind of a boundary check or a, a, a double check, an HR block second glance, so to speak, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So this is really cool. I, I really want to understand a little bit about how you kind of have done this at Lightyear a little bit more, um, go into a little more detail on what were the challenges that you were seeing and why did you build Lightyear? What was, what was happening? Cause you obviously had an outside perspective of something to start this. Um, in terms of, I can, I can answer, I guess the second question and then get into the first one. Yeah. Um, but I have always been a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, like mm -hmm. in middle school, in high school and in college, I was doing all sorts of things to start ventures, um, in across, like not necessarily technology ventures, just all sorts of ventures, like odd ventures here and there. Um, and in college, I loved writing code and building things. And I was like pretty into the startup ecosystem. Um, working at Goldman Sachs after school is almost antithetical to being entrepreneurial. But yeah. the actual thought process there was, um, okay, I have no money and no access to people with money. <laughs> And I think that that would be useful. Like it sounds, um, it sounds like a joke when I say it that way, but it's actually true. Like if yeah. I want to start a business, um, learning a bit about how corporations operate and then meeting people with potentially deep pockets that I could persuade um, if I so choose could be a good path to starting a business that would de-risk it quite a bit. Um, so I worked at Goldman and got great experience. And then I worked at uh, Point State, like the large hedge fund that you mentioned, where I was investing in enterprise software and telecom, um, made some great connections, learned a ton. And I quit my job at Point State, which was a lucrative job at the time with nothing lined up, um, really with the goal of just like spending a lot of time in telecom and building a business in it without actually having an idea, if that makes sense. And um, the simple thesis that I had was, well, with telecommunications in particular, it's a multi-trillion dollar market mm. with no happy customers. With and no happy customers. Yeah, whether That's it be true. like a business or a consumer, there it is very difficult to find a happy telecommunications customer. Mm -hmm. And also there are there's almost no startup activity in the space other than people starting new internet service providers. And even that's particularly mm -hmm. difficult. Um, it's not a space that attracts smart 23-year-old Stanford graduates to build exciting businesses. So like that combination of factors indicates like, okay, maybe there's something really exciting to do in this space. I don't know what it is being honest, but like, let me just quit and look into it. And I fell, I iterated on a bunch of different ideas. Some of them were terrible ideas, um, but <laughs> I fell into what was business telecom and the the few interesting things that were determined regarding business telecom are 
one, businesses spend way more on telecommunication services than consumers yeah. um, and buy much more complex services which, with a lot more liability. For example, you know, a hospital is going to pay way more on internet connectivity than you would at your home because if they lose their internet connection, people will die. Like there's that sort of liability that exists yeah. on the business side. Um, and two, the way in which businesses buy their telecommunication services was designed pretty much in the 90s and hasn't changed since. Really, you're doing phone calls and emails to all sorts of potentially shady characters, and there's no digital way to do anything. So the simple idea was like, okay, can we build a digital means for businesses to buy their telecommunications? And you know, in short, that is kind of what we're doing today. And I think the thesis has proven pretty correct, although with lots of nuances along the way. The most interesting challenge that is worth citing is we had this idea in late 2019, and we were initially going to start a product focused on procurement of internet connections for small business offices. Yeah. Uh, and when COVID came around in you know, March of 2020 and shutdowns came, you know, the small business market just fell off a cliff oh, yeah. and the office internet demand <laughs> fell off also a cliff that <laughs> it is now beginning a little bit to return from, but demand is, you know, potentially permanently challenged in that segment. So yeah. we, you know, went through a period initially of just thinking like, oh, perhaps like, I mean, I guess initially there was a denial period of like, Okay, things no! are gonna open up in a week. <laughs> then, then, then there was the acceptance period, and it was like, okay, things are not opening back up for quite a while. And even when they do open back up, people and it may not return to offices. Um, and what we shifted what from was um, a small business strategy to an enterprise centric strategy, where demand for telecommunication services for all sorts of reasons went way up, and we moved more into non office centric, more mission critical infrastructure services like bigger dollars, higher liability in like different segments than office, which are actually like larger markets unintuitively and made some transitions that were painful at the time, but ultimately really helpful for the business. And we now have a product that is utilized by a bunch of large global enterprises and you know, still have lots of challenges, but like the COVID period in particular was one that um, sort of nearly knifed us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I love that story because people are saying it's not there, but we won't say the R word, but recession, right? <laughs> we will. And we're not. And one leader once told me, you just described pivoting like on a dime, literally going, I'm going from here. I went through my grief period. I went to here and now I'm coming back on top because so what? That was my original thing. Now I, uh, you're kind of like a Phoenix rising, right? You're kind of saying, I went through this and um, this story. And so I had a, a vestige. I'm trying to remember which Actually, it wasn't. It's it's the book. It's it's by Jack Stack, Great Game of Business. Um, but one of the consultants for Great Game of Business um, just constantly, repeatedly told the company, recession is not a thing if you plan for it. And that has always stuck with me because um, when you're 
first starting to send your product to market, you had an idea of going this direction, a certain direction. I'm not saying it's one way or the other. And then you ended up in a different direction. And even though there was a roadblock, because COVID was a huge roadblock for a lot of businesses that were starting up during that time, you evolved and you changed. And you have then begun the road back because um, if you had if you had tried to stick with your model and said, no, I'm sticking with this model, it works or whatever, COVID's going to go away, bury your head in the sand, all of that kind of stuff, we probably wouldn't be having even this dialogue today about what's going on because it wouldn't have worked, right? And so I, I love that you brought that story up because a lot of people are keen on hearing you know, some, I would say hope with their businesses for sure. And to make sure that they're kind of realizing there's a lot of opportunity out there. It may not be the way you first thought it was out there, right. Or has been out there for sure. So going into light year, that journey, you started to get there and you're where you are today and you changed. So what are some of the things that you grieved? You said you grieved, you did all this kind of stuff, but you you talk about different people who were working with you. Bring up some of the stories of how you kind of came about that because some people were still putting their heads in the sand for COVID. It's gonna it's gonna be fine tomorrow. You know? uh, yeah, and it's interesting, even you bring up sort of like the the recession data point of now, because you sort of have based on the story, like a tale of two recessions almost, right? Like yeah. in 2020, we had what was a short-term COVID-induced recession that was sort of pretty unpredictable, like yeah. um, in, in terms of like the actual shock that occurred and how things played out and the catalyst for transformation that occurred as a result of COVID. And today you have what is a recession that's effectively like a hangover from stimulus and monetary policy and capital availability mm -hmm. um, that, again, not to say, oh, you definitely could have predicted this, but far more predictable than the COVID recession. And the impact of both and, and how you plan for both is quite different in the sense, um, in terms, like for, for either recession, the planning component is really just ensuring that you have a really strong balance sheet strategy to where you can ride out any sort of like transition or shock or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, which is like panning out positively now because capital is far less available than it was. Um, with COVID, the thing that was impossible to plan for is you had a series of transitions that accelerated significantly that literally it's not possible to have planned for some of those yes. things. And then also like stimulus and response and all these other things. And that is one where really there is no way to have planned for the outcomes, but the only thing you could have done well is just make sure that you had adequate cash on your balance sheet and a level head with regard to how to analyze what was playing out. Like, why do I yeah. bring that up? I guess is, you know, like right now our company is of course having to write up both of these recessions and how you plan to and think about each is different. We were... The lucky thing we had during COVID is, although, yes, it sort of put a knife in our thesis, we had a little bit of pre-seed funding, and we were only a three-person company, including myself, my co-founder, CTO, and our VP of sales. We paid ourselves next to nothing. Yeah. And 
I was ready to make the money that we had in our bank last infinitely. Meaning like take everyone's pay down to zero, take expenses down to zero. We're going to figure it out or so help me God kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and that is the type of mentality that's requisite in a situation like that, because you don't know how long things last, how painful things become. Thankfully, like demand didn't fall off a cliff. It was really supply that fell off a cliff and stimulus helped a lot. And there are all these things that were difficult to predict and it was way less painful than you would have thought. But in the short term, it looked very grim. Right now with this current recession, our company's a good deal bigger. We have much more staff and you can't take expenses down to zero without like making big, big changes. So the, the smart thing that we did in 2021 when the market was very hot is we did not um, sort of delve into pressure to way aggressively over hire. Like it's hard now to see a startup that is not laying off a significant percentage of staff because tendency to over hire and seek growth at all costs. The, the goal was to have a sustainable strategy for capital that could withstand a recession, which it does seem like we are in one, uh, not overvalue the business, like be thoughtful about how we price our own asset um, and mentally ensure that everyone is aware when times are great that like, you know, the, the market is overstating the quality of what is going on in the economy and you should be concerned. Like things are not as good as they seem. And when times are really, really bad, tell people, Hey, we have a lot of money in the balance sheet and things are actually probably not as bad as they seem. And you're at a company that's well-run and remind people of that, but always be mentally preparing for the absolute worst internally. Yeah. And I think sometimes people are, are don't allow themselves to get there, you know, mentally preparing. It's just, it's a head in the sand kind of thing. Um, I remember in a Vistage meeting, one of the guys came out and he was just, they'd been around for all these years and he was up in arms and everything was going to go bad. And like by the next two months, he was like, who knew everybody turns toward this product because of what's going on. And, and I, and so when I, when I try to talk about mental preparation, give us some examples of that, because we all go through a grieving process on mental preparation. But when you're, when you're a, an entrepreneur or you own your own company, small business, whatever you're working on, sometimes bottom up doesn't realize top down worries and stuff like that. Even in a small company, there's a lot on your plate and being mentally prepared to handle things is not always an easy thing. I think you work out seven days a week. I think you told me that as part of it. Yeah. <laughs> but give us some points on how you were getting mentally prepared for, and how you're mentally preparing right now for this. Um, I think it is particularly difficult for a lot of humans to embrace the harshest form of a reality, um, especially when it's the opposite of a self-serving reality. Mm. Um, yeah. Meaning like if you're undergoing what's like a difficult revenue quarter, you know, like it is probably difficult for the person leading the charge to call the quarter a dumpster fire. You know, it is difficult for a person to admit that they're terrible at something that they think they mm -hmm. should be good at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like in January 2021 or 
or sorry, in January 2022 or December 2021, it's maybe painful to admit as a SaaS CEO that took on around that value of your company at X, that given what's happening with rates, that your valuation probably dropped 70% over the course of like three to four months, because it's just hard to frame that. Um, And I think very quickly embracing the harshest and sometimes most painful or least gratifying form of reality can be the most beneficial because, um, you know, I'm like the example of like the CEO, like, you know, two different CEOs, one CEO that is willing to embrace that your valuation dropped 75% and one CEO that is insistent that, you know, it's not really a big deal. This is more of a blip and it's going to go away. You know, CEO one is able to make painful decisions early and rationalize costs in the business and focus on areas of growth that can get you out of your valuation hangover and perhaps you're okay. CEO two may waste, you know, six, nine, 12 months of cash balance on just status quo before you admit what is reality. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you're forced to make what are tough decisions, you have way less firepower and time to make what are tougher decisions. And I think in terms of like how to really do that, it's just hard. Um, I don't know that there's like necessarily a right answer, but you know, I think things like putting yourself in what's like a fair mental headspace and ensuring that you're just rational and matter of fact with the way you view the world, mm-hmm. it's important. Just like self awareness is very, very important. And I guess like I don't know, going to the gym I think helps. Meditating <laughs> helps. Writing helps. Reading helps. Um, you know, like ensuring that you have a sort of like personal board of directors that you trust who will tell it to you like it is and are not yes men yes, um, ma'am. is yeah. particularly useful. And like, you know, I have a series of people that I trust to seek opinions on various business related items. Um, and I have a spectrum meaning like, you know, one to two people that tend to be more optimistic, one to two people that tend to be very pessimistic, one to two people that are more of a baseline and you solicit a group of opinions and you'll be able to form your own. And of course, like have your own independent perspective, but it's good to like market check on what is your perspective on the market. And then, you know, eventually you just have to execute. I, I love that. Um, I think what helped me at one particularly difficult time and it's my two cents, take it or leave it is I, cause I'm a, I'm an empath. So I, I struggle with um, walking in people's shoes all the time and knowing what this, what some of those changes might mean to other people's lives. At the same time, I had a coach one time say, when you're working with a company, your integrity, because you signed up with that company, was to that company, right? To their goals. You aligned with those goals. So if those goals no longer align, then you have no bo- no business being there, one. And if your employees' goals never no longer align with the company's goal, they don't belong being there either, right? And that really kind of, that kind of helped me because... Um, there are times when I've had to go into sales teams and go, this isn't working. You know, this is just not working. And, you know, I'm happy to help someone find a different place or whatever. But what is happening is we all went and said, amen to whatever goal this was when we were coming through the door. And when that goal is not being achieved, something is off. And if there is no more alignment with that, 
then something needs to change. And that has helped me kind of go, okay, because sometimes you can, you can really feel like, Hey, I'm sticking to this goal. I'm creating all these jobs. Cause my, my vision is, um, and I say it all the time that businesses can change lives faster than government can, right. They can create jobs. They can, create better things in the world without waiting for grants and all this kind of other stuff. Right. Um, and to stay true to that integrity, if something gets in the way of that, that's kind of my boundary that I say, okay, this is my boundary, my empathy aside, this is the boundary, right? This is, this is the needle that we do not cross. And that way I put my check and balance and then my emotional state is so much better from it, right? It becomes more my, what I call Shirzad's charming sage side of my brain versus my saboteur side of my brain, right? And you just described integrity to a T. It was like, listen, this is what has to happen, right? This is what has to happen or, or this does not exist or we're not moving forward or or whatever that is. And I, I just love that. That That's great. Um, because I think there's very few people that really understand that. We like to place blame. My leader sucked or this didn't work or whatever, you know, and it's no, you knew the rule of the game. The business is the game. This is what we're doing in this business, you know, and this, if it's not working, it's not working and it, it sucks, but it's not working, you know, and you pivot and you move. And I, I love it. All right. So first of all, I, I love that you are an avid reader. People may not know that about you, but you can tell that you're an avid reader because you're going through so many, so many things. Plus, I mean, who gets out of college and goes and works for Goldman Sachs? And, and, and we just know that there's amazing things on the horizons for you. So what what's your favorite book? Who's your mentors? What tell us a little about that? Um the ironic thing that I will throw out is I discovered a love of reading post college. Uh, <laughs> meaning like I read I read what I was supposed to read for school and to get good grades and stuff, but you know, I used a lot of spark notes. I wasn't really excited <laughs> to read and that's that's a big regret of mine. Um I now read a ton. Um and in terms of like books that I really like, um, you know, I'm very big into human history and like decomposing human history. So like frameworks for human history or books that provide that are really good. Like I think Guns, Germs and Steel is great. I think Sapiens is great. And there's another book called Big History that is great. And also I love like um, really, really good memoirs, autobiographies that can dig into interesting people. Like I recently finished um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah, um, I love it. That's one of like the greatest books ever off-cited, very common choice. And then um, Gandhi's autobiography, I think is amazing and particularly good. Um, two people with like a real will in very different, totally different circumstances, but a real will to achieve and to persist in different ways that are like ridiculously disciplined. Um, I don't know. It's it's the kind of thing that that helps you really think about your own personal purpose. So I like those are, those are two books that I really, really love. Oh yeah. Those, those are fantastic. Those are fantastic. And I love, like you said, a little bit of the, the, the differences between the two and kind of sort of that, um, 
Yeah, they're from completely different circumstances. So that's that's very interesting. And then, well, we kind of kind of bring it up, you know, but you talked a little bit about Mark Cuban and some other really cool people that are investors in Lightyear. And <laughs> I have to bring it up. I just do because, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Uh, so how is that like and what is that like because it, it sounds a little bit like you have sort of a relationship with mark cuban a little bit yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, you know i mean mark mark cuban has like a big portfolio so yeah. so uh, but we've, we've definitely done well in the context of his portfolio and you know the interesting piece of context there is of course i'm from dallas and the dallas mavericks which mark owns um, I have been like a, like, I'm a huge NBA fan. It's like my yeah. favorite thing to watch. And I follow NBA gossip and I've been, a a Mavericks fan for a very long time. So like watching Shark Tank, being a Mavericks fan, like I always dreamt of finding a way to work with Mark Cuban. And the, the interesting <laughs> thing is I got lucky. We were raising our seed round of financing, which fortunately was a very sought after round to invest in like a lot of institutions so word was getting around about like hype around our company and it so happened that a friend who works with the guy who was leading investments for mark at the time said hey mark cuban's team found out about your company and wants to meet you and it's the kind of text that like at the time i was like this has to be a joke come on yeah <laughs> uh, like, i'm not going on shark tank and it turns out it was real he connected me and they ended up committing pretty quickly and like um, put in a little bit into the round and also introduced us to a few other people who are also NBA owners who ended up investing. And that was an awesome opportunity. And we, you know, like interface from time to time. Mark has, there was one time where in an investor update, I sent out saying we were looking for a software engineer. And the next day I got like 500 LinkedIn requests. And I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> Mark posted like, Hey, one of my companies is hiring a software engineer. And, and so like stuff like that happens from time to time, like Mark's posted about like year and things like that, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's more of a personal flex if, if anything, and we have lots of awesome investors on our cap table. It just so happens that Mark Cuban is the one that when you're recruiting people, people will know of and remember. And remember, of course, you know, Shark Tank, the whole nine yards, it it kind of is there. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to sort of pull it out. And then you were going to go to college for music. <laughs> and you ended up in the, you know, I actually a lot of musicians actually end up um, in the more in the space that you're talking about. But what changed? Why? Why did you switch? I'm curious. Yeah, pro probably more financially lucrative for me to have done <laughs> what I've currently done in retrospect. But um, really, the decision would have been to probably not go to college and pursue music, if anything. But uh, I, in high school, was really, re like, I was very deep. I produced hip hop music and worked with a series of artists and I was getting deeper and deeper into that realm. And, you know, to this day, it's like probably like probably my number one passion. Um, and I was getting some early traction and it was, and I was also making some money producing and I worked with a few artists that were getting a bit of traction and it was a fun time. And I 
loved doing it and making music. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was a possibility of me taking some time off and not going to college and trying to get an income via music or just going all in on that path, which I of course opted not to do. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe that is a forever regret of mine, but if I'm being honest, I was like decent, but I don't think I was talented enough. <laughs> I think I am better at this <laughs> is, is probably where, where being honest with myself. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because there is, there's a lot of amazing, amazing musicians that never make the radar of any, anybody. So I am assuming you're probably very good and being humble about it, but um, yeah, you, you know, I sang opera for 18 years. And when we talk about music, it was like, well, my, that was my fun. Now my job, my day job pays my bills. you know, And and that was more of it. And, and, you know, I was fair. I don't know that I was, you know, it was on a few shows and a few things like that, but it's just, it's kind of a wake up call. So anyways, I just thought it was very interesting. And so if you could give advice to the younger generation coming up and yes, I know I'm old and you're probably not old. I'm just going to say it that way, but what advice would you give somebody? Uh, my advice on this is also simple. Um, <laughs> follow your, think about what your interests actually are and then follow them. Um, I think when you're young, there's a lot of things that are purported to be interests that are pushed on you by maybe your parents or other influences in your life that you may or may not actually be interested in. And thinking for yourself, what actually excites you with regard to getting out of bed in the morning is just really important and hard to answer. And a lot of people go their entire lives without getting to that answer. So if you're fortunate enough to have the opportunity to like figure out what it is that excites you, um, do everything you can to get to that answer as early as possible and then work really hard at trying to isolate whatever that is with regard to like education and work. Um, Because especially if you start early and try really hard, I think you'd be surprised how not as difficult as it seems it is to pursue your passions. Like I think building and interfacing with people are real passions of mine. And it just so happens that running a software company is a great way to, you know, like get a high out of building, get a high out of interacting with people every single day. And then also to like challenge myself mentally and rack my brain with like all sorts of like numerical and technological questions. Like I have a blast and like, I view it as like a daily fight to keep my job this way for as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. We really, um, I, I always appreciate it because I, uh, back to Victor Frankel, somebody posted just recently and there were two sides of sort of what he said, said, which was some, some work to, I, and I'm saying it wrong. I know I'm saying it wrong, but some work and they find passion in their work that then sort of pays for their passion, right? (laughs) And that kind of thing. So find and uncover that. And I'm not quoting him exactly, but that was the gist of it is um, find passion, 
find passion in what it is. You know, my, my dad was a bit of an example of that because he was an outdoorsman a lot and he became a CPA and he used to always say, well, my passion is you kids and I, and the toys and the fun and my CPA, when I go and do that kind of work, whatever it is that he's doing right in, in that realm, because there's a lot of different things in that realm is to pay for all that passion. And so I, that's what gets me up in the morning, you know, gets me moving in the morning, gets me going. Yeah. In the summer months I take off more and yeah, we can go hiking or we can go boating or whatever some of those things are, but his passion was definitely in his children and he had a, a hand, quite a bit of them. So <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that works and that works. that works and you know, and he loves teaching that. And so I, I love that you say, tap into that, follow it and make sure you find something there for that. Um, so people want to know how to reach you <laughs> and I'm sure that you'll give us one good way. We'll list everything obviously on this, sh on the show. Um, but what is one of the best ways to get a hold of you and chat with you? Um, you can, uh, I guess like on LinkedIn works. Um, mm -hmm. I am Dennis Langachin and I'm sure you can find how to spell my name via this <laughs> podcast. So like you can search me and get me there and message me or, um, shoot me an email, Dennis at lightyear.ai. And uh, our website is lightyear.ai. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dennis, for being on the show. And I want to thank all the listeners and guests. If you liked it, loved it, share us some love, go and comment. Um, we certainly appreciate it. I've learned so much today from from Dennis and all of you who chime in and comment. So thanks again. And thanks again, Je Dennis. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Valerie, for the opportunity. Thank you all for joining another great episode. For show notes, links, and resources, visit revenuemaze.com. Hats off to all you small businesses out there. I can't wait for the next episode.